Hello and welcome to Ocean Calls, the podcast making waves on the issues that matter on our blue planet. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter, Jeremy Wilkes. Today we're talking about ocean energy. The steady swell of the waves, the powerful tug of the tides and the driving force of the wind. These are natural forces that all of us are familiar with and they're natural forces that have great potential to power our lives if we can harness them to generate electricity. We're already doing it with wind, but what about wave and tidal? And what about the other kinds of ocean energy using salinity and heat to make those megawatts? There's a lot to talk about, how they work, where they're going to put them, how we scale them up, and the thorny question of how much harm they might do to the environment. So joining me to try to answer some of those questions are two experts in the field. Britta Schaffmeister, the CEO of the Dutch Marine Energy Centre in The Hague. Hello, Britta. Hello. Thanks for having me here. And Elena Rodriguez, Ocean Policy Officer at WWF in Brussels, a specialist in maritime spatial planning and renewable energy. Hello, Elena. Hi, it's very nice to meet you. And then, at the end of the show, surfs up dudes big time. Our special guest is Brazilian big wave surfer Maya Gabeira, one of our planet's bravest and most accomplished sportswomen, who tells us all about her favourite ocean animal. It's quite a ride. Okay, back to harnessing the energy of the ocean. Britta, straight to the question that I'd actually normally ask you at the end. Okay. Do you do you have a favorite form of ocean energy, a system that you think has massive potential that everybody really needs to hear about? I think my favorite form is to integrate it in current uh, systems, so in current infrastructures, and that would be tidal energy. So that's energy generated from the natural flow of tides. And then near our coast, we already build, of course, infrastructures to protect ourselves from the water. And you can integrate smart solutions in there. Elena, do you have a favorite, one that you think is maybe an emerging and interesting kind of technology or maybe a well-established one that you think is just awesome and everybody should hear about? Maybe it's a well-known, but not as well-applied. I would say floating wind which is still yet to be developed, especially in the Mediterranean and Northeast Atlantic. But once we have it, I think the potential is huge as well. Maybe to add on top of that, if you have floating wind, you could actually excellently combine it with wave energy. We're doing that currently in the in front of the coast of uh, Portugal to make a first demonstration of that. So then you actually use the space very efficiently and we have different output in different times. So that would be really great to combine that. Yes, since I'm Portuguese, I can say that I have seen that pilot project and I think it's very interesting how we can combine multiple energy sources within the same space with lower environmental impacts as well. I think that's that's the future of the field. We're talking about ocean energy and as I said in the introduction, we're going to talk a little bit about offshore wind, but we were talking about lots of other kinds of technologies as well. And we know that offshore wind is a growing sector. It's been doing very well. They're literally growing because they've got turbines as high as the Eiffel Tower now. But what are the 
different ocean energy systems that you are developing there in the Netherlands. Can you just talk them, talk through them quickly and just kind of describe to us what they are? Because some of them are quite unusual and people might not necessarily have heard of them. There are four main types, which would be tidal power. Uh, what I already said, it's energy generated from the natural rise and fall of the tides. We also have wave power. That's energy generated from the movement of ocean and sea waves. Uh, both are quite predictable. One is less known, that's salinity gradient power. Uh, it's energy generated from the difference in salt concentration between two fluids. Mostly that's fresh and salt water. So uh, rivers coming into the ocean uh, could be a very interesting spot to put a salinity gradient power plant. A very interesting part is that it's available 24-7 all year round. So it could um, really make you independent of other sources of energy. And another one is ocean thermal energy conversion. So that's energy generated from the natural temperature difference in the oceans. Uh, you can find that mostly around equator, um, also available 24-7 all year round. With the, the first two that you mentioned, I'm guessing they share pretty much the mechanism to generate electricity. They're basing it on some kind of turbine, are they? They're basing it on movement of water. That is true. Uh, for tidal, you could actually see it like a wind turbine. You put it underwater. Uh, and then the water is 800 times denser than wind. So you could imagine that you need much smaller devices to generate the same kind of electricity. Uh, and wave, um, we have floating devices. You also have devices which are uh, on the seabed and then they uh, are up and down with the waves. So there are different types uh, concepts available for wave. So that makes it um, the potential way higher, but it's a little bit further from the market yet because we still need to find out which one works the best in which area. And then the third one you were talking about, which is going from freshwater to saltwater, that's where the water goes through a kind of membrane, if I understand correctly. Can you describe what that sort of machine looks like? Does it take up a whole river uh, or do you just have a little part of the river that's got this machine on it? How does it, what's it look like? It's actually a land-based structure. So you would actually extract some of the water from the river and extract some of the water from the uh, sea. And uh, you need to have two pipes and uh, it will be aligned. You have a um, membrane in between and then uh, you force actually a little electrical stream like a battery because it's um, the, the membrane does leave one ion through and the other doesn't. Can you just describe as well these floating thermal systems, I'm guessing, right? They're sitting in the ocean and they're using the thermal gradient between cooler and warmer water. What does that look like? You can have it on two sides. You can also have a land-based uh, uh, structure and then have pipes going into the water, very uh, down into the water. So you have to go uh, one kilometer down um, and get the real cold water from there. But by um, translating that energy with uh, heat and cold, you get um, electricity uh, or you can make a floating structure that would be on the ocean. It doesn't need to be bigger than that, but it will be like, a, what is it, a hundred square meter or something. And then you have uh, pipes going down as well. It's fascinating. Helena, when you're listening to this, you're from WWF, a conservation organization. Is there one of these kinds of systems that you think is most in tune with kind of preserving the marine environment that seems the most sustainable when you think about that? Because obviously you can't build one of these machines without having some kind of impact. But is there one that you would look on more favorably than the other? I think when speaking about renewables, we also need to understand that by increasing the share of renewable energy produced and the decrease in carbon dioxide, we're already preserving nature. So that's an important point. But 
then we need to understand that uh, renewable energy infrastructure is still infrastructure. So we need to subject it to robust assessments and understand what are the environmental impacts. And a lot of times we have don't have enough research on seafloor habitats and what are the impacts of, for example, noise pollution on uh, marine mammals and other species. So it's important to understand that getting the location right is the first step to securing a development that has low environmental impact. But what are the kind of possible environmental impacts of establishing these kinds of machines, for example, the large tidal energy systems, for example? Do they have any particular impact on the on the environment, on the wildlife and things around that? Well, noise is one of them. Uh, it's important to consider that noise impacts, for example, dolphins, whales and maritime corridors. We also have to understand that whenever structures are placed on the seabed, uh, they might disturb benthic habitats, which are species that live on the seafloor habitats. And it's also important to understand that depending on where we place them, we might be disturbing uh, blue carbon ecosystems, which are ecosystems that already store carbon, for example, seagrasses. So it's very important that we consider lo the location and uh, take not only into consideration what are the places with, for example, best tides for these types of energies, but what also the places where the impacts to the environment are lower. Britta, how are you facing up to those kinds of questions? Because I'm sure you get them. Yeah, of course we get them. And we also do monitoring. Um, so uh, what Elena is stating about uh, the noise, uh, a lot of technologies are already developed, of course, for the wind uh, sector to reduce noise as much as possible. Uh, but also, uh, that's why Tidal, for example, is one of my favorites. Um, it's in water flows. And mostly if you integrate it into structure, the water flows has so much noise there that an additional turbine, well, really, you don't hear that really across the noise of the water flow itself. But also for the seabed, uh, especially in the North Sea, it's quite sandy. So there's not a lot of habitat. So we do see that if you anchor there, uh, for example, for a wave or for a floating solar, for example, that it gives a structure for uh, to grow a new habitat as well. So that new uh, microorganisms are settling there and that it will start growing. I would just like to get back to you on the issue of sands. So we might look at them as just sandy, but they do have an inherent value that renders protection. So we cannot just be saying by building oyster reefs or other types of anthropogenized infrastructures that we are adding to, to the environment because the environment has a value by itself. And whenever developing these types of infrastructures, we need to consider also the mitigation hierarchy, which starts by avoid. So we avoid, we reduce the impacts, and then we mitigate in case we cannot avoid it. I guess you have to accept that uh, you're going to have moments when you have created a serious disturbance in the ecosystem, but you're winning some clean power, I suppose, right? You have to accept that, don't you, Lena? Yes. I mean, it's it's part of, of the deployment. Uh, we also have oil and gas in, at our seas, and those are the types of things that we don't want because they don't align with what is a climate neutral future. But whenever deciding, we can also make the conscious decision of minimizing the environmental impacts. And I think that's a key point. We cannot just say we have to accept that there will be environmental impacts. We have to actively try to minimize them. And this is not just by technologies, but also by the influence of governments and political power to make better environmental decisions. 
Did you know that there are three floating wind parks in operation in Europe at the moment? Two off the coast of Scotland and one off the coast of Portugal. These platforms have potential to be used for other things like aquaculture too, but there are still questions about the impact on marine life. For example, what's the damage to the sea floor longer term? And how do you prevent larger mammals like whales from being entangled in the cables? Britta, where, where are we going to put this stuff in Europe? Because we know the North Sea is a great place to put wind. It's got an awful lot of wind in it already. But that's only a very small part of our planet. It's a small part of Europe. Where are we going to put this stuff if we want we want to scale it up? Um, is uh, Are we going to see a future where it's everywhere in the Mediterranean, in the Atlantic, etc.? Well, I think we should first look at location and then see what is there. Look at the resource available and then have a good mix to implement. For example, the North Sea, um, it has a very moderate wave climate. So you have fixed wind there. If you can combine it with floating solar in an area, uh, you massively uh, upgrade actually the electricity output. If you go farther south, like the Atlantic coast, there is a major good wave climate. Uh, so there you would have more wave forms maybe combined with floating wind because you cannot actually have fixed wind there. A question in, in my mind. I mean, if you look at Earth from space, it's a blue planet. But I kind of have, I'm listening to you. I'm wondering, and it sounds funny, do we have enough space in the ocean for all of the activities that we want to do? Because I'm guessing we, can't, we don't want to go that far offshore. You want to be able to get to the maintenance, to be able to go and fix them. And that's also where you want to go fishing too. Yes, because we see that a lot of the marine protective areas are closer to the coast. And those are areas that are naturally fishing grounds or areas where uh, you have fish nurseries that then feed into those seafood and marine uh, resources. So it's important to protect these sites. And sometimes we they might not yet be constituted as a marine protected area, but they are very valuable. And sometimes we still don't know about these sites because they are not being mapped or scientists are still trying to, to map them. Uh, but it's important that we preserve them. That's also why I'm interested in ocean energies because uh, if we can combine several types of energies within the same place, then we leave space for other maritime activities to happen. So it's important that we maximize the usings of space uh, where we have it. I mean, the further offshore you go, if you want to bring it onshore, you will have a lot of transport. And I don't think that's very sustainable. So we should try to generate the electricity where we are needing it. Uh, at least that's my personal opinion. Uh, we reduce the use of energy anyway, and then try to generate it where we're using it. Um, that will be the most sustainable and best for nature. I would argue that the key is to have it where the impacts are minimal, despite of price, because... We should not compromise. But you also need to think about coastal communities that might have lost jobs because of something happening with fishing, and then they quite fancy getting a new job in this clean energy sector. What about them? Yes, I think we should involve communities and we should have transparent uh, participatory approaches to developing these types of technologies. And whenever possible, we should also not only allow for workers to move from either the oil and gas industry or fisheries, whenever these are impacted. Uh, but we should also think of compensating communities for the losses, not only in, for example, uh, fisheries, but also the coastal impact of having an offshore wind farm closer to, to the coast. So 
we have to have a dialogue with communities, understand how they see their space, not only from a cultural perspective, but also economic, and try to find a compromise between all parties. I think that's the way forward. Britta, when you're talking to policymakers, and I know that's an important part of your job um, in the Netherlands um, on a European level, how does the conversation go? Are they, in, to your mind, putting the right kinds of policies forward? Or you know, what are the sticking points, I suppose, and the things where, where they're just not getting it right? Well, I think most of the policymakers are quite focused on short term. So they completely focus towards 2030 uh, because we have a major challenge and, and, and they want to make huge steps. But they do forget that after 2030, if we put our solar and wind uh, capacity there, that we still need other technologies. So I think that's the first part. Um, what I do see with policymakers is, I mean, they're really searching for solutions and, and how to get there. Um, and it's quite complex. I mean, we have the mar maritime spatial planning. We have a uh, conservancy of our nature. We do have our economical uh, ways of that everybody should have a living. Um, so they're quite complex conversations. Elena, you're right in the heart of the Brussels machine. You're you're in the kind of the, the the Brussels bubble. What are the conversations there like about these kinds of emerging ocean technologies? I think there is definitely the need to speed up the process, and that relies a lot on wind energy. Uh, if we take a look at the European Commission 2022 Blue Economy Report, they even say that the only energy they consider is wind because it's the only one that has the capacity to deliver or is delivering the renewable energy production that we hope to achieve by 2030. I think we should be also pushing for these technologies to be included in, in the renewable strategy and the national climate targets as well. But we know that wind and solar are basically cheap now. They have become cheap. How can these new technologies possibly hope to compete with those? Because I said wind, wind is just getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and, and solar is costing less and less. Well, sometimes they cannot be placed in the same site. So that's a plus. Uh, you have different geological conditions, ecological conditions. And that's also something that we have to explore. Um, and a lot of times you can place them together as well. So to maximize the amount of energy you produce within the same place. And also you need to diversify sources, as we said, in order to achieve the climate neutrality goals that we so desperately want to achieve. So it's something that needs to happen and policymakers need to signal the interest, but also research needs to be better and more explicit on what are the environmental impacts and where can we place these types of technologies as well. You need to have uh, projects, you need to have demonstration projects, otherwise you cannot monitor the impact. So that's something we struggle a little bit. We have, it's proven technology. Uh, there have been pilots and demonstration projects all over Europe, but now we want to scale up. But you need, of course, the license needed spots at the current, what you said before, in most multi-spatial planning, there is no place for ocean energy. So it's quite difficult to get there. At the moment, we're actually not even allowed to put our electricity offshore into the grid because most electricity laws don't allow it. That's crazy, though, isn't it? It is. But I mean, those are the challenges. So the challenges is mostly not even finance. It's, it's actually getting it done. So the technology is there. We can deliver, but we need 
licenses. We need locations and um, hopefully also a little bit of feed-in tariff or uh, start capital for, um, for the CapEx because then investors will come in. Did you know that the European Union's strategy on offshore renewable energy sets an objective of deploying 100 megawatts of ocean energy capacity in the next three years? Proponents say that by 2050, ocean energy like tidal and wave could meet 10% of Europe's current electricity demand. And that's enough for 94 million homes. Elena, paint us a picture of your vision then for how this should work, because obviously you want to defend nature and you want to defend the areas that need to be looked after, but you also know we need green, clean energy solutions. What's your best case scenario? How would you like things to look by 2030 or 2040 or whatever? Uh, I think it all starts with space. So getting the right location. Uh, Within these right locations, we should also choose the energies or the projects that have the least impact. And for that, it's important to say that in the European Union, uh, member states can include up to 30% of non-price criteria. These are social and ecological criteria that can help us decide on what projects to back up. How confident are you that we can get this right, actually, from your point of view? I'm pretty confident. I know I'm an optimist. Within the EU bubble, I'm very optimistic, but uh, I'm pretty confident that we can we can do it right. We have the tools to do it. We have enough policies. What we are lacking is the correct implementation. But I think the willingness is there. And what the current crisis show is that civil society is behind this speeding up of renewables. And if there was ever a moment to do it, it's now. That must be quite encouraging for you, uh, Britta, to hear that. Yes, yes, because actually you have the stakeholders, you have the uh, the business to implement it. So uh, I think we should make really good use, efficient use of space and be aware that uh, nature, restoring nature is quite difficult. So uh, we need to uh, be aware of what we're doing and I think also to do it smart. So don't have their away farm and their a wind farm and their fisheries. Um, we need to really build with nature and uh, have integrated approaches. I think that's my future. So have offshore renewable farms depending on location, but also have localized energy systems within our rivers, for example, um, to make sure that we work together with the stakeholders, that people do get their energy when they need it, um, but that they also profit from the generation of it uh, and that we conserve nature or actually restore nature if possible. And that's something that I wanted to add as well. We can adopt a precautionary approach to, to planning and we can say, okay, let's avoid marine protected areas, let's avoid sensitive sites, let's avoid areas that can be targeted by the upcoming nature restoration law, let's avoid these places that we already know are vulnerable because it's true that we have to deliver on the renewable energy targets, but we cannot forget that we also have the goal to protect 30% of EUCs by 2030. So these are two very big goals that need to go end in end if we want to deliver them both. Otherwise, it will be impossible and we will have a disconnection between climate and biodiversity goals that I don't think anyone wants. 
Thank you very much uh, for talking to us about this really fascinating topic, and I'm looking forward to see how it develops in, in the future. Thank you, Elena Rodriguez from WWF and Britta Schaffmeister from the Dutch Marine Energy Centre. Thanks for being with us on Ocean Calls. Now to the part of the podcast where a famous person tells us all about the marine animal they love the most. Today's guest is an absolute legend in the world of big wave surfing. She holds the world record for the biggest wave ever surfed by a woman, a monster 22.4 metre wall of water at the famous spot of Nazare in Portugal. And her ocean favourite is an iconic species that many of us adore. Let's have a listen to Maya Gabeira. I'm Maya Gabeira. Uh, I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I'm a big wave surfer and I reside in Nazaré, a small fishing village in Portugal. My favorite ocean species, it's almost impossible to call one, but I'm gonna really try and do that for you guys. So I'll go with a dolphin today. because they're the greatest surfers in, on Earth. They're amazing surfers. Have you never seen many dolphins sharing waves and they ride perfectly with style and sink. They jump up and down. They love riding waves. I really think that they love riding waves and they do it in a group, which is nothing like we do as surfers, you know, we're very selfish and we want to ride the waves ourselves by ourselves and dolphins are completely opposite. I always feel kind of like safe because maybe, you know, the fact that they have fins and they could be similar to sharks. Um, you first spot a fin and you're like, oh my God, what, what is that? You know, And then you realize it's a dolphin. You're like, oh, dolphin. It gives you a relief and you're like, oh, good. That, that's, a, that's a mellow company, nothing to worry about. I find them very peaceful, um, very playful. They jump. I've been in the ocean many times with dolphins. Here, especially in Nazareth, we have a lot of dolphins. We have um, a breeding area here. Um, so many times uh, on my path from the harbor to the waves, I cross schools of maybe 20, 30, sometimes 10. They do say that it used to be in the hundreds, like 200 of them. But these days, you know, we have less, but I still get lucky and I see them often. I remember the first time I had like an experience with uh, marine animals. I was around 10 years old. I was in the island of Fernando de Noronha, northeast of Brazil. And on that trip, I swam with dolphins. I, I swam with, with small sharks, reef sharks. I did my first um, baptism. So I, I dove for the first time with scuba. And I was 
I was, yeah, I was crazy about the ocean and everything I saw under. And dolphins was definitely one of the, the main animals that I was attracted to. I envy the way that they, they go around in the water and it's very natural for them. It's their habitat. So I often, I often envy <laughs> all the animals that uh, their habitats is the ocean because I'm sure they're not fearful about taking waves on their head. My thanks to Maya for that inspiring story that just makes you want to get out into the waves and start trying to surf like a dolphin too. The Ocean Calls podcast is created by ocean lovers here at Euronews for ocean fans around the world. And I'm your host, Euronews science reporter, Jeremy Wilkes. And this series is produced by my colleagues, Naira Davlashian and Natalia Olsner. Editing is by Laurie Martinez, Chiara Santella and Luis Lopez from Studio Ochenta. The theme music is by Gabriel Delmasso. Our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. For more from Elena Rodriguez, you can follow her on Twitter on at H-I-A-V Rodriguez or WWF Europe on at WWF EU. For more from Britta Schaffmeister and ocean energy in general, then visit DutchMarineEnergy.com. And to see and hear the big news on big waves from Maya Gabera, then go to her Instagram feed on at Maya with a Y. The Ocean Calls podcast is made possible by the European Commission's DG Mare. You can listen to it on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And if you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating, comment and tell your friends because your help makes spreading the word about the ocean so much easier. If you want our team to read your comments on social media, use the hashtag OceanCalls. For more information on Ocean Calls, go to our website, euronews.com, and I recommend you visit euronews.com ocean while you're there to watch the very special Ocean series produced and presented by our friend and colleague, Dennis Lottier. It's stunning viewing. You can follow world news from a European perspective on euronews.com. <laughs>